Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find the book of Exodus, chapter 13. We'll get that on the screen here in just a second. Exodus, chapter 13. It's good to see you. I missed you last week. Uh, Last weekend, I was in Wake Forest, North Carolina, taking a hybrid class for uh, seminary, and I would have rather have been with you. Uh, It was long and a lot of content, but it was good. Um, But Sunday, I drove back, so about eight and a half hours of me alone in the car going from North Carolina back to Auburn was my day. Uh, So I missed being with you all, but I am glad that we're back together. I'm thankful that Luke did a good job teaching you from Exodus uh, 12 and 13 on the Passover. I listened to his message last week. He did a fantastic job, so I'm glad that you had him uh, to teach for you, and I'm glad that we have him to cover for me whenever I'm out. Um, Today, we are going to talk about, as it says on the screen, the presence and the power. The presence and the power. In the book of Exodus... The Passover has been observed. The lambs have been slain. They've been eaten. The blood has been painted on the doorposts. The angel of death, the Lord, has passed over Israel and killed the firstborns of Egypt. And Moses has led Israel out of slavery. The exodus itself has begun in earnest. Israel is leaving for good. And you don't have to turn there, but just listen. And it's not just Israel that's leaving. So in Exodus chapter 12, you, you read this last week. Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, this is what it says. It says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So think 600,000 men, besides women and children. This would be probably upwards of 2 million people. But look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. What we don't need to forget in this Exodus story is that it's not just the people of Israel who are leaving Egypt, but Egyptians themselves are following after the God of Israel. This mixed multitude are now leaving out of Egypt to go worship Yahweh as the true God. And today, we're gonna uncover and study and dive into one of the most climactic events of the book of Exodus, as well as the entire Old Testament, and that is the crossing of the Red Sea. So here's the main point for this morning. If you're taking notes, this is something you should probably write down. God's presence and power are always with his people so that his glory may be known. God's presence and power are always with his people. He is never away from his people. He is never far from them. And why is he with them? Why is he showing his power? So that his glory may be known. So that his people might know their glory of God. So that the world might know the glory of God. This is why God acts. And fortunately, God's people who have just witnessed these plagues, who have just witnessed God's miraculous power over Egypt's gods, you would think that they would have full confidence in Yahweh. You would think that they would have full trust in his servant Moses, but they are still sinners. They're still sinful people. And the word that you and I need to just kind of attach to them, and if 
we're honest, maybe attached to ourselves as well, is the word fickle. They're fickle. They waffle back and forth between trust and distrust. They hesitate as to whether or not they should follow God or follow other things. They wander away from his commands and wander away from his presence. They fear the wrong things and place their trust in the wrong people. And we'll see that with clarity today. But even though Israel is fickle, even though they wander and hesitate God is gracious and he is faithful no matter what. So first we need to see in Exodus 13, God is present with his people for his glory. Look at Exodus chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, let's the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you in reading this text and the majority of us are probably incredibly familiar with this story. We're familiar with the the scene of Israel leaving Egypt led by a pillar of cloud and fire. We're familiar with the story of Moses raising his staff and parting the waters of the Red Sea. But God, I don't want us to miss the truth that you have for us in your word. God, you have given us as believers your Holy Spirit. And I pray that he might open our eyes and open up our hearts this morning to see the truth that can be found here in this text, here in this story. God, help us as we study your word, learn your truth, and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So God, through Moses, leads Israel out of Egypt. And what we see in this little story is that God is present with his people for his glory. And we see a few things about God. First, we see that God is someone worth following. God is someone worth following. Israel is following after this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. It says that Israel went not towards the promised land, not towards the land of the Philistines, but instead southeast towards the Red Sea. So you just have to use your imagination with me for a minute. If we're in Egypt... Okay, Egypt is right here. The promised land, Canaan, is northeast. Okay, so they would go this way. But that's not where they go. God leads Israel this way. They go a long way to go around to the promised land. What's going on there? If you and I were the one leading the way, if you and I were the one who were giving the directions, we would not go the way God went. We would not go the way that Israel went. They went the long way. But there's a reason for that. 
Israel doesn't know this, but the land of the Philistines is a land of war. It's a militarized zone. There are constant battles and kingdoms conquering kingdoms. And God knows that if Israel sees all of this fighting, they will be filled with fear and run back to Egypt. God knows which way to go. It may not be the shortest route. It may not be the easiest way for Israel, but it is the right way. God is worth following because he knows where he's going. And it says in this text that Israel is equipped for battle. That's the phrase in the ESV. But the text literally says that they are walking out in formation. So there is a kind of visible readiness to Israel. But visible readiness does not mean that they are actually ready. Israel might have looked tough. They had a lot of numbers, but they were not ready to conquer any armies That would come later. That's gonna come in the book of Joshua when they go to conquer the people of the promised land. But first, now in this season of life, the people of Israel have to learn how to follow God wherever he leads. God is worth following because he knows the way, but he's also worth following because he knows his people. He sees their weaknesses. He he knows that they can't stand before these armies. He knows that they're frail and they're full of fear. He knows that when they would see war and battle, they will cry out and run back to Egypt. And yet he is kind to them. God doesn't say to Israel, hey, you just need to grit your teeth and bear it and get through this land. No, God finds his people where they are and is present with them and leads them to where they need to go. In a word, God is fatherly towards his people. He loves them, he leads them and guides them. And not only is God worth following, he's faithful. So in this text, we just read that Moses has the bones of Joseph. These are 400 year old mummy bones that have been prepared for a time such as this. Right? You don't have to turn there, but in, Exodus, in Genesis chapter 50, rather, in verses 25 and 26, this is what Jacob says. It says, then Joseph made, or when Joseph, rather, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So for 400 years, Joseph's bones have been sitting in Egypt, ready to be taken back to the land of his fathers. So wrapped up in these little verses right here that Moses has the bones of Joseph, that he's taking them out of Egypt and into the promised land, wrapped up in those little phrases are promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph. Don't miss this. Moses taking Joseph's bones out of Egypt is a fulfillment of centuries of promise. 400 years have passed. Students, don't think the Lord is gonna fail you. You may be wondering in your own life, God, where are you in this? Where where is your power in this? Why don't you feel present in this? For 400 years, the people of Israel knew, okay, Joseph's bones, God says, Joseph's bones are gonna come out of Egypt. When is that gonna happen? Is it gonna be this generation? Is it gonna be the next generation? Is it gonna be the generation after that? 
You and I don't have to wonder whether or not God will be faithful. He has always kept his word. And students, he will be faithful to you. When you trust in him, when you follow him, when you recognize him as someone worth following and you walk in his ways, he will be faithful to his word. Not only is he worth following, not only is he faithful to his word, but he gives his people his very presence. His very presence. We see this clearly, right? Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. The big word for this is what we call a theophany. A theophany. This is just a physical manifestation of God's presence. And we've already seen this in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter three with the burning bush, right? And it's also the smoking pot and flaming torch before Abraham when God makes his promise to him in Genesis chapter 15. It's these physical manifestations that you and I can see the presence of God. We can see a, a manifestation of his glory and his power. God's presence, as you can tell, is often manifested in smoke and in fire. Think about Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and smoke filled the temple. It was, this cloud was thick. And we will see the same kinds of things as we go farther on in the book of Exodus. When Israel gets to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when they complete the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and again, this is super familiar for us, but don't miss this. Just think for a minute. Can you imagine seeing this sight? Like you're in the desert with two million people leaving slavery, and there's Moses, the one who has been speaking on behalf of God. There's Aaron, the mouthpiece of Moses. And as they're walking out this pillar from the sky falls. This tornado looking thing of smoke and fire, and it is directing you. It's leading you. It's taking you somewhere. It's not destroying you. It's not a natural disaster. It's God's presence. Imagine how easy would it be to follow that? Moses, the guy who's been speaking on behalf of God, goes to you and says, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh's presence and he's leading us to the promised land. So all we need to do is follow this giant miracle that all of you can see, right? If we were there, right, we would go, absolutely, that makes sense. I'm confident in the giant tornado of fire. Like, I don't wanna go up against that. So I'm gonna follow after it. How easy would it be to follow that? How confident would you be in God knowing his presence is right there? I know where he is, he's there. I can see it. And if we're honest, don't we want this? Don't you want this in your own life? Don't you wanna be able to wake up in the morning and see like a little fire leading you somewhere? Like, oh, I wonder if that's the Lord. I wonder where I should go to school. I wonder if this person should be my friend. I wonder if I should have this conversation. And then you just see like the fire like leading you out and you're like, ah, oh, thanks God. Got it. Isn't it hard to live by faith and not by sight? Don't we, don't we think, don't we tell ourselves if, 
if God would just show me a little of his presence, if God would just show me a little fire before me, I would quickly follow him in obedience. It would be so much easier. But the truth is, for you and me, if we're Christians, if we're believers, we have something far better than a pillar of smoke and fire. Listen to Phil Riken. He says, sometimes we wish that God would give us the same kind of guidance today. If only a, a bright cloud would lead us directly to the school we should attend or to the job we should take or to the person we should marry. Yet the truth is that God gives us all the divine guidance we need and in a much better form. He has given us the fire of his spirit. And now we have his glorious presence with us all day and all night. It is as if the column of cloud and the pillar of fire have come right inside us. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is divine. And since he's divine, the Bible declares that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, part of the Spirit's glorious work is to give us direction for life. Jesus promised that the Spirit would guide us into all truth. And now, by the power of his holy presence, God is always with us to guide us. Students, that's yours. In Christ, that is yours. The Spirit of the living God lives in you, and he is able to guide and direct your steps. It's much better than a, a physical pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It's closer to you than a brother because he dwells within you. And the fact is, even if we had this physical manifestation of his presence, we would probably not obey it all the time. The fact is, this side of heaven, both in Israel's history and in our present, we all have problems believing God because of our sin. So God is present with his people for his glory, but God's people often fear man and trust in themselves. God's people often fear man and trust in themselves. Let's look at chapter 14, starting in verse one. The scene has been set. They're walking out. The pillar of cloud and fire is before them. Chapter 14, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hihirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihirath in front of Baal Zephon. So God fills Moses in. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. You guys are leaving one of the greatest military powers the known world has understood. This, this king of Egypt and his army is great. So here's what I want you to do. You're, you're leaving, you're fleeing. I want you to go find the Red Sea. I want you to go find an impassable body of water and I want you to set up camp right next to it, facing out back toward Egypt. Now, I'm not a military strategist, but I have to assume this is not a good plan, right? Because if I have the, one of the greatest armies known to man barreling towards me, it's probably not wise to close myself in with no way of escape. It's probably not smart to set myself up in a corner as this army barrels toward me. So God fills Moses in. He said, look, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna camp here. Egypt is gonna come. I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart and he's gonna follow after you. But I will get my glory over him. And so Moses obeys the Lord. He causes them to encamp at the end of the sea. To our minds, this is suicide. Israel's not trained. They're not equipped to face off against this military might. And yet they situate themselves with nowhere to run. But God has a plan here. He's baiting Pharaoh. He's bringing him in. Because as we see here in verse five, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. Pharaoh was not repentant. Pharaoh did not believe in Yahweh. Pharaoh did not know for certain that God is the Lord. He's still wickedly bent on enslaving God's people. He's still reaching out to oppress them yet again. And God is working out all of these things in this story. He's working out the defeat of Pharaoh. He's working out the deliverance of Israel, all for his glory. And this is not a strategy that's foreign to God. This is not something he's never done before or that he never did again. We see this strategy most vividly in the cross. Satan, like Pharaoh, fell for the trap. He must have thought that victory was his, that it was gonna lead to the, the death of the one born of a woman, the one who was supposed to crush his head. But it actually led to his ultimate destruction and to God's glory. What we need to see is that not only does God defeat his enemies, it's not just that God defeats them, but he makes a spectacle of them for his namesake. The world will know that he is the Lord. Listen to Colossians 2.15. It says that he, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. That the rulers and authorities of this world, the spiritual forces of darkness that have claimed to this place, Corinthians tells us that the God of this world, the devil, 
But Colossians tells us here that God disarms all of these rulers and authorities and he puts them to shame. It's not enough that God is the conqueror. The world must know that the wicked will be shamed and judged and that God will have triumph over them. Now you may think, based on all that you've read, based on all that you've seen in the book of Exodus so far, Israel is gonna be fine. They have seen God move mightily in the last few days and weeks in the plagues. His very presence is with them in a pillar of smoke and fire. Surely they will not be afraid. They can trust that Yahweh won't have any trouble with Pharaoh and chariots. He's just killed all of their gods. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel is standing next to the physical manifestation of God's presence and yet they see an enemy And they cry out to Moses in accusation, in anger, in bitterness, in hatred, in confusion, and full of fear saying, is it because there weren't enough graves that you brought us out here to the desert to die? Now that's ironic because Egypt had a ton of graves, right? The pyramids are graves, Tombs full of mummified bodies. Israel is, I mean, Egypt rather, is known to bury their people. And so Israel is saying to Moses and to God through him, are there just not enough graves there? You're gonna take us out of the wilderness to kill us. This is not at all what they should have said. Israel is looking at their circumstances while neglecting to look at God who is right next to them. This leads to fear of man. And in this case, Israel is in, is in fear of Pharaoh. And instead of trusting in God, they're trusting in themselves. They know that they're powerless. They know that they can't win. They know that they will be destroyed. They know that compared to Egypt, they are done. So bitterness, accusations, anger, even historical revision Like, look at verse 12. They're changing their tune. These redeemed people are now saying, don't you remember we said we we just want to serve Egypt? We just want to be slaves. Is that what happened? No, in Exodus 1 and 2, the cries of Israel lifted up and God heard them and God knew. But now because they're threatened, now because they feel fear, now because they're angry, now because they can't understand their circumstances, now because they can't win in their own strength, they're gonna change the story. Freedom, redemption, no, we'll, we'll take slavery. 
That's what we really want. And students, you and I do this when we're threatened. We do the same thing. When things don't go our way, when our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, we will live in the flesh and we will be led by fear or anger or bitterness or hurt and it will seem right to us because we will convince ourselves that this is what the truth is. But it's warped. It's not true. It's not right. It's not real. And God will not allow them to stay this way. So thirdly, we need to see that God is powerful for his people, for his glory. Moses does not buy their fear. Moses will not let them stay afraid of the wrong things and trusting in the wrong people. Instead, what we're going to see is that Moses points Israel to God. This is love right here. This is what love looks like in the midst of a frustrating circumstance. People who love one another tell the truth to one another. And sometimes the truth is an encouragement. Sometimes the truth is a reminder of God's goodness. It's a reminder of God's grace. It's a reminder of God's power. But sometimes the truth hurts. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Read along with me. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. So in my translation, it says, fear not in verse 13. In some of your translations, it's gonna say, do not be afraid. And in the Hebrew, this is what you would call a negative imperative, it's the kind of phrase that this is. Fear not, do not be afraid. This is some of the strongest language possible that you can communicate in Hebrew. So, so don't miss this. Fear not, do not be afraid from Moses right here is not a comfort, it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke to Israel. It's like he's pulling them really close and saying, stop it. Stop thinking that way. Stop feeling that way. It's not right. You have no reason to fear. You have no reason to get caught up in your fears against Egypt and you have no reason to trust in yourself. God is with us. This is not your fight. It's God's fight and he will win. All you have to do is stand firm and be silent. And can we agree that those are some of the hardest words to follow. You just need to stand firm and be silent. Just be still. Just wait. Why is this hard? Why is this difficult for us? Because we want to act. We want to do something rather than to watch God at work. We don't take matters into our own hands because sometimes we have to wait on the Lord. And that seems wrong. It seems wrong for us to slow down. It seems wrong for us to be still before the Lord. It seems wrong for us to just wait on him. But that's what Moses is commanding Israel to do here. We stand still 
Don't take matters into our own hands. Be silent and observe the Lord in power. Now, this is true for many of your problems in your life, and it's true for many of my problems in my life because my temptation is to try to fix stuff, to try to make things right, or try to find somebody who can. But it's ultimately true for our salvation. Acts 2, sirs, what must we do to be saved? Acts 16, Philippian jailer, sirs, what must we do to be saved? Nothing. You do nothing to be saved. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Why? Because Jesus has already done the work. You just need to stop, do not fear, be still, and look at the Lord. Wait on him. Know him for who he is. Receive the work that he has done for you. He has already fought and won that battle. And in our lives, when they're fraught with peril and weakness and sin and frustration and anger and fear, our task is not to just grit our teeth and bear it. Our task is not to try to fix everything in our own strength. Our task is not just to roll over and be destroyed either. Our task is to look to Jesus and stand firm. Look to Jesus, stand firm. In other words, we need to have faith. We need to have faith that God really is able to do what he says he can do. And what's difficult for you and me is that oftentimes we will find ourselves in positions where we can't do it. And because we can't do it, we think it can't be done. That's fear. That's trusting in yourself. But what this text is telling us is we look to Jesus. We have faith in him, in his power, in his promise, in his presence. We wait on him to do the impossible. We wait on him to do what we can't do. We trust in him when it's hard. We find other people who have their eyes fixed on Jesus and ask for help. God, I, I can't look at you right now. I think it's so hard. It's so difficult. It's so frustrating. It's, it's hard to see you. Well, I need brothers and sisters in my life who can see him right now to come alongside me and remind me, hey, this is where you look. You don't look here. You don't look in your own strength and your own power. You don't look in your own circumstances. You fix your eyes on heaven, Jesus says. So what does God do for Israel? He fights this battle and wins. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord 
in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You and I have watched movies and we've read this story and we've been a part of vacation Bible schools and we see paintings on walls uh, in the church of this story. And I, my fear is that we miss Israel knows. As they're walking on dry ground on the sea floor, looking to their left, looking to their right, and seeing walls of water. They're living in an impossibility. That they're, they're walking in a miracle. I mean, can you imagine what they're thinking? Can you imagine what they're saying to one another? Can you imagine what their hearts are doing in this moment? That they're looking around, they're going, God is with us. And he is for us. And he is fighting for us. He is doing all of these things for us. He does love us. He is faithful to his word. He will get glory. Oh, look how, look, how, look how amazing this is. Look how awesome this is. Look how unbelievable this is that we're looking to my right hand and to my left and see the sea. And you look behind and you see that the chariots of Egypt, the most technologically advanced military power, the chariot, is faltering and clogging and failing and they are unable to catch up to two million Israelites on foot. This doesn't make sense. But all that I know as I'm walking through this sea is that Yahweh is here and he's doing something and it's glorious. He's the one who acts. He's the one in control. Moses moves a staff, but God parts a sea. Pharaoh drives into dry ground, but God clogs the wheels. He is the sovereign one. And his plans will unfold as he sees fit. Enemies will be defeated. Chosen people will be saved. God cannot act any other way. And students, God is offering you and me right now in this moment that kind of life. 
that life can be yours. One that is not free from peril and danger and heartache and sorrow, but one that is set upon a rock that will never fail. He offers you hearts that may be wounded by friends and enemies, but will be etched with the word of God and comforted by his spirit. He offers you and me freedom from slavery to your sins and forgiveness for all that you have done. He offers you, if you would believe it, he offers you himself. That's what Israel did right here. And that's what you can do today. So instead of fearing man, instead of trusting in self, when we see God's presence and his power on display for his glory, our response must be fear God and trust in him. Fear God, trust in him. Look at verse 30. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Lord saved Israel. And Israel saw their enemies scattered, humiliated, and destroyed. God made a spectacle of them and triumphed over them. They saw God's power before them and they believed. Students, you and I have the word of God before us and it tells us unbelievable truths, unbelievable stories. It tells us a story about a sinless man who was God in the flesh and a cross and an empty tomb and you and I can see God's power in this story in infinitely greater ways as we read this book. By God's grace and for his sake, read this book and believe. See his power, see his glory, see his presence with his people and believe in him. But know that Israel's belief didn't stop in just saying, oh, I believe in God. It also led to fear. And rather than fearing man or their circumstances, now Israel, verse 31 says, fears God. They fear the Lord. Now, many of us say that we believe in God. We say that we believe the gospel, that we're trusting in Jesus' work on the cross and the empty tomb for our salvation, that he's forgiven us of our sins, that he's brought us into his family through adoption, that he's clothed us with his righteousness. And all of these are wonderfully good truths. This is the good news of the gospel. But do you fear him? Like, do you really fear God? Do you live in light of his power, of his holiness? Do you really know, do you really believe that eternal judgment is coming for those who are not in Christ? Do you know that even as believers, you will stand before his throne? 
the living and the dead will stand before him. Do you believe all of God's word? Those of you who believe in God, but you may not really fear him, listen to 1 John. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now you and I can try to soften that text up and say, well, you know, it doesn't really mean that you'll never sin again. And I think you and I get that. John says just one chapter before, little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. But there is a difference between sinning and being convicted of that sin because of my fear in God and making a practice and pattern of my life that is wicked. And someone who lives in here can just as well say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. I believe the gospel. Jesus is my savior. I can't save myself. The cross and resurrection. They can say these things. But if they do not practice righteousness, they neither know him nor have seen him. And my fear is that for many of us, For many of us, we know him, but we don't fear him. We believe in him, but we don't live in light of his presence. We don't live in light of his power. We don't live in light of his glory. If you claim to follow Jesus, but still keep on in unrepentant patterns of sin without conviction, without fear, then something is deeply wrong. And I'm not saying that you're not gonna wrestle with sin in your life. Don't hear me say this. I'm not saying that you're gonna have, not gonna have struggles in your life or temptations that are alluring to you, but do you fear God? Do you hate the fact that you have these temptations? We have to repent. Because threats against your reputation or threats against your status or threats against some of your friendships or threats against some of your material wealth or even threats against your physical life should not be your greatest fear. God should be. But if you know him and you believe in him, 
and you fear him, there is a kind of joy that you will find in this world that we live in that will not make sense. It'll be like walking on dry ground through a sea. It'll be like walking through a miracle and saying, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. The, the, the numbers don't add up. But all that I know is that everything around me is out of my hands. And all I can say is, look at God. Look at his power. Look at his presence right before us. Look, look, at, look at his glory among his people. He will be present with you closer than a pillar of fire and smoke. And his power will be evident in your life. Because when you fear God, listen, when you fear God, you have nothing to fear. When you fear God, you have nothing to fear. And I want that for you so badly. Like I, I can't make you believe that. That you would believe the Lord and trust his word and fear him. That you would let your life spin in the orbit of his glory. So that you would walk in faith. Knowing that no matter what the world is doing, no matter what your relationships are doing or your class or your family or whatever it is that's going on, knowing that if all of those things are breaking down around you, God has already won every victory that matters. And he's done that for you. So that you might respond and say, There is no one like the Lord. Who is like him?